Welcome back to another episode of the Scholars and Storytellers podcast, a podcast from the Center for Scholars and Storytellers at UCLA. This episode is all about storytelling for Gen Z and Gen Alpha, or young people who were born after 1996. We have an impressive group of panelists who spoke about this topic during the Scholars and Storytellers Summit in October 2021. I'll let our moderator, Dr. Gerald Higginbotham, take it from here. Uh, my name is Gerald, or Dr. Gerald Higginbotham, which is okay. a little tough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, I'm a senior fellow at uh, CSS. Um, I worked on uh, and was a lead author on the AIR report uh, that we published in 2020. Um, and thankful for you all being here today to really continue what the spirit of that work started. Um, I have connections to this particular uh, panel and really content because really thinking about my experiences like as a young person looking for myself in media and not seeing myself represented, um, not seeing myself represented even in school settings too, um, really kind of draws home and brings kind of a, the serious nature of, of the importance of really thinking about how youth are learning about their world today um, based on what they're seeing uh, in media. So we have a wonderful panel of folks that really are getting at the heart of storytelling for, for these audiences. So first, I'll uh, introduce uh, Joy Gorman. Uh, we have Steve Tao, we have Stephanie Elaine, and we have Erica Oyama. And so I'll have them introduce themselves. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having us. I'm Joy Gorman. I'm a partner at Anonymous Content, um, where I focus on content that I like to call youth impact or YI, so impact, inclusion, and intention. Um, I produced four seasons of 13 Reasons Why, uh, also made a show on Apple TV called Home Before Dark about a real nine-year-old investigative journalist who's a little girl who, um, and we made two seasons of her life, and um, just released a new version of Eyes on the Prize on HBO Max, which I produced with Patrice Colors, um, and we're about to start the series of Eyes on the Prize with Dawn Porter at HBO. So I really try to focus on authentically inclusive storytelling that gives kids and young people something to reach up to, something that has education to it and that doesn't pander to them. Um, and that's kind of me, I guess. <laughs> Hi, I'm Steve Tao. I'm the Senior Vice President of Current Programs at the CW Network. I like to call myself a serial uh, executive because I've been working as an executive for a long time. Um, I actually got recruited for my first executive job while I was attending UCLA. I was in business school at Anderson and the Disney came recruiting and I got a creative job out of the business school, if you can believe that. Um, I was a feature executive and it was my very first job in the business. I worked for Walt Disney and Touchstone Pictures. Uh, from there I went to ABC, um, I moved to television, and I have subsequently been at networks, at studios, I've been a producer, I've been an executive for almost all of my long storied career. But um, the, one of the reasons why I'm here is in many of my early jobs, I was the only person of color in a room. And when there was a decision or an option even to tell a diverse story, I got it, whether I wanted to get it or not. For a long time, I was pissed off because I, that was, it seemed like that was the only kind of story I was getting. But when I didn't get those stories, I got pissed off because I didn't want anybody else telling those stories incorrectly. 
So I've always been an advocate of um, diverse storytelling. When I was at ABC, I had the, actually the opportunity to be able to say, I'm not allowing this cast. You've got to have a person of color in the cast. Um, I, you've got to have somebody of color in the writing room. Um, and I really prided myself early on when it really wasn't cool to do so, to be able to do so. When it, whenever I could, I would do that. And now at the CW, it's a very, we, we consider ourselves a very inclusive network. Um, and I love the environment because I get to um, tell people, I get to guide people to the right place in terms of diversity, both in front of and behind the camera. I'm Stephanie Elaine. I've been in the game a long time too. Um, I started as a reader because story is so important. I love, I was like, I didn't know you could have a job out of college called reader. Perfect. <laughs> um, and then I realized that was a studio connected to it. Uh, it was Columbia. I was promoted. I was um, very junior exec when I read Boys in the Hood and was promoted to vice president to supervise it. And that experience really sort of set the tone for the rest of my career because it was so evident that telling a very specific, culturally specific story had huge impact not only in the community that was reflected but on the whole rest of the world to really see these kids as people and not just, just hoodlums, you know. Um, and so I stayed with John for a long time. We made five movies together. Um, I was at the studio. I left when I had another kid and ran Jim Henson Pictures where I produced Muppets from Space and Elmo and Grouchland and really terrorized the children. I'm <laughs> so sorry. Um, and, uh, and then got back to what I was, you know, really meant to do was just to tell um, stories uh, uh, about people of color, you know, and women. So I produced um, uh, Hustle and Flow and, um, and then I was, I was thinking, because I was on this panel, I was like, why am I on this panel? I was like, but, you know, Boys in the Hood, um, mm. Burning Sands, which is another movie that's on Netflix, um, um, and of course, Dear White People, you know, all stories about young people really finding themselves and, and searching for who they are in a world that's mostly white, you know, reflected mm -hmm. back to them. So that's what I do. I just produced the Oscars a couple of years ago, which was a big, um, I made it as diverse as possible, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like we started with Janelle Monet. that says it all. Um, and um, and now I'm in TV, and I got a lot of really great stuff coming up, and use the pandemic to really um, develop and meet a lot of writers and set stuff up. And so um, yeah, so TV and film, and I became a grandmother during the pandemic. All right. Biggest thing. Legends. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> My name's Erica Oyama, and I am a writer and co-EP on the Netflix series Never Have I Ever. And before that, I also, thank you, um, I came up with it and just whispered it to Mindy, just kidding. Um, no, I'm very um, lucky to be there. It's, I'm on the third season now, been there from the beginning. Um, and I grew up in Alabama in a primarily, let's 99.9% .9 white suburb and didn't see myself on TV pretty much at all. And, uh, except for like maybe those two years that like Margaret Cho's sitcom was on the air. <laughs> I was like, kind of. Um, but I um, started out writing comedy in, in these very like white male dominated spaces uh. and, and just like wanted to keep up, so sort of felt myself trying to, to tell those stories, to play in that world, and then have been very lucky to 
to hone in on, on the stories that are more important to me about families, women of color, young people of color who are dealing with issues that are both universal and nuanced at the same time. And it's just been an honor to work for like incredible women of color and um, to be part of those teams. Like I said, a great panel <laughs> of folks we have with us. And I think all of your, the, the works that you all are you know, engaged in, or the 13 Reasons Why, All American, Dear White People, Never Have I Ever, right, are really touching on like aspects that are important to younger generations um, and really kind of displaying and discussing some of these tougher um, kind of social issues and highlighting these social problems in a way that is one, digestible, but then also two, entertaining. So could you all, um, and again, this is just an open question, speak to what kinds of stories or premises or conflicts out in the world are actually kind of garnering the attention of um, these younger generations? Like what is, what are, you know, these uh, Gen Alpha, um, Gen Z folks actually really, you know, hungry for in terms of content and storytelling? Truth. I think mm -hmm. that's the main thing. Like they, they, they're growing up in a world that is so crazy and they don't want to be lied to. Like mm -hmm. they want, they want to see it head on, they want to discuss it head on, they want to be, um, you know, part of the world that we've handed them in such poor <laughs> shape. But I think that's it. They don't want to be lied to. That, that's been my experience. What about you guys? I mean, I think that for, for those of us who were growing up before 2007 and the invention of the iPhone, our parents could hide things from us. Mm -hmm. You know, we only, we only had a certain block of television we could watch on Saturday mornings or whatever. <laughs> um, and I think that the reason that anxiety and depression and suicide has gone up, like, so ridiculously in the last 15 years is that kids have access to information before we have a chance to talk about it with them. And as a kid who grew up in a very diverse environment, like working class and a latchkey kid, you know, I remember watching Oprah to learn about what was like going on, you know, or like watching Eyes on the Prize on PBS to learn what nobody was teaching me in school. Whereas our kids, I think, are being bombarded with content and a lot of it is false and glossy and they have to pick apart what's coming at them and figure out what feels like the truth. So I really feel like it's our responsibility when we're, when we're doing long form storytelling and we can give characters depth and time to spend with our kids that they have to feel like those characters are nuanced and real and share their pain and share their sorrows and make them feel like they're not alone. Right. And I think for my network in particular, we target a young audience. So we need to know what the young audience wants to watch. Yeah. And what they want to watch is they want to watch themselves. They want to see their experiences um, depicted on screen. And if we depict them in an inauthentic way, we depict them uh, in a way in which it's perceived that a white person or an older white guy might have written it, yeah. they're going to smell it and they're going <laughs> to massacre us on mm -hmm. social media. So we are looking for those stories, the stories of uh, kids today, and the kids today we know are of a very diverse background. They want to see themselves being represented on camera, and they want to hear their stories told from people who are of their generation. And we've got a couple of shows on the air. You know, our youngest skewing show, frankly, is uh, um, I hope nobody is experiencing this, is Riverdale. I hope nobody is like one of those kids from Riverdale. But our second youngest show is All American, uh, which is a show that 
um, we were hesitant to put on the air. I mean, the common wisdom before we put this on the air was it's going to be a very niche show. Not any, only a couple people, maybe from um, uh, the south side of Los Angeles, is going to watch the show. But because it tested really well, the numbers were really, really high. It's probably one of our highest testing pilots. Despite the instinct that people had not to put the show on the air, we'd put the show on the air. Now, the first season, nobody watched the show. Um, and we didn't know what to do because we knew this was our best show out there. It felt we had uh, people of color, people who were much younger, telling these stories, much more reflective of themselves. Um, and it wasn't until we got into Netflix for um, you know, that first season where everybody found it. And our numbers went up something like 300% that second oh season. God. And it is still, now we're going into season four, we just did, uh, premiered um, on Monday night. It is the highest rated show on the network, period. So we know that there is an appetite for authentic storytelling because when kids find a show that reflects them, like Never Have I Ever, they're going to watch it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think also it's like telling these stories about young people but not in a condescending or, um, you know, dumbed down way and just making sure, we always use this phrase in the room, like at the top of your intelligence, what, what would this character be doing? You just like... Because we're all, you know, we those emotions that we experience as kids are the same. Oh, sorry, I'm like playing with my microphone. But, <laughs> you know, that sadness, that heartbreak, that desire that we've experienced as kids is the same. Those same feelings are here within us now. And so it's like really honoring that and like not being condescending, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, I think also think, thinking about how to kind of communicate, like, like you said, these truths, and, and thinking about the question of, you know, like maybe you screened All-American and it didn't test well. One, how are, how do you imagine, or how are these shows being tested in a way, or like young, are young voices being included in a way that these stories are kind of coming to fruition or coming to being made? Because I think about nowadays, like, you know, social media, people can give instant feedback, you know, mm -hmm. if something is authentic or not. So how are you all like using the voices of young people to actually influence where um, these shows are going or what, what stories are being told? Like, how does that actually look in, in practice? Well, for all of the shows on the CW, we have a, at least one or two writers responsible for social media. So it is, uh, we'll have a social media presence for All American or for In the Dark. Um, and they monitor. And we have a social media team at the CW, and they monitor everything. So we know instantly overnight, we get feedback, very, very harsh feedback sometimes, um, what the audience thinks about, of our shows and whether they think something is authentic or not authentic. And the showrunners, you know, like it or not, they have to listen to their audience. They, they need to be as in touch with their audience more than anybody else. Um, so they're the ones who are paying attention to what their um, viewers really want and what they respond to positively and negatively. And those of us who are not a network, they, they really do a great job. But when you're working at all different networks as producers, you don't have that power. You don't know. You can't control, really. You can suggest, but you can't control how your network markets your show. So I would just say, like, in terms of the storytelling, we, um, we are so obsessive about making sure there are, even if, even if, the, even if the room is going to be more lower level, 
a lot more lower level than upper level, it's like really making sure that there's some fresh out of college or 25 to 30 year old Gen Z people in the room and really making sure that our showrunner is listening to their particular experience, making sure that we, you know, for every character there is a writer that reflects perhaps their experience or their walk of life. Yeah, that's what we did. Yeah. Yeah, no, because yeah. I think. I think in terms of uh, like what we talked about in a lot of the publishing about air and authentically inclusive representation, we think about you know diversity on kind of these uh, kind of social social groups where it's like race, gender, social orient sexual orientation, and things such as that. But also too, when we think about like actually giving you know authentic um, representation of actually younger audiences, it's like the inclusion of those voices as well. Um, and so I, I think these are these are very important points. So. In what are in the content that you all have created, you know, are created now? Like, obviously, you had identified or you tapped into something that might not have been being tapped into before in prior programming. So, what were some of the kind of shortcomings of prior programming um, that was focused towards adolescents that um, you all are now trying to like rectify in what uh, what what you're kind of producing and, and, and putting forth now? We talked about truth, but. But again, like, were there other shortcomings as well that people we should be thinking about? Well, I can think of one very big shortcoming from the past is that a lot of these shows written for teenage audiences were written by older white guys. You know, and they really don't, they may have understood the perspective from their children, but they really <laughs> didn't understand the perspective themselves. Um, when you look at the shows that we have now, um, they're written from the perspective, I mean, we have young showrunners now. Um, I have a lot of female showrunners. In fact, of the seven shows that I'm covering right now, only uh, five of them are uh, run by diverse or female showrunners. Um, I never would have been able to uh, say 10 years ago that I'd even have one diverse showrunner. Mm -hmm. Maybe I wouldn't even have been able to say I have a, a female showrunner. There's been a tectonic shift when you look at younger programming that um, I think networks and uh, streaming services realize you've got to have a showrunner who speaks that voice. Yeah, and it, it used to be that, you know, maybe they would have one token person in the room mm -hmm. and, and that poor person would have to like have the whole burden of explaining or, <laughs> you know, representing all aspects of black life mm -hmm. or Latin life or whatever, Asian life, whatever it is. Um, that has really changed, mm -hmm. right? I mean, when we put together the room for Dear White People, we were like, okay, this is a show about black kids being in white spaces. Mm -hmm. So we really wanted to make sure every single person in that room was a person of color, except for one white guy, but he was queer. And so it makes a huge difference because when you're in those rooms and you're talking about your life and you're using that as fodder for your stories, mm -hmm. Who are you talking? Who's in the room? You know, who's in the room really, really creates those stories. So that that old school way of just saying a white guy can do it, you know, I think is definitely a thing of the past. Mm -hmm. Because my experience is that so many white guys I know are like, damn, like, uh, am I? Is it over for me? You know what I mean? Like, there is a real sense that authenticity is the way to go and not just from us saying it but from the people on the other side absolutely of the table. Mm -hmm. yeah. absolutely and the um, 
maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> but a lot of the white guys who uh, thought it was so easy, well, it's not so easy anymore. Now it's an even playing field because it was much harder for younger, diverse writers to get their voices yeah. heard. So now they just have to be like everybody else. They have to work a little bit harder. Yeah. It's your turn. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, when I was a teenager, I feel like so much of the content um, was like young women were the objects in the story. They weren't mm -hmm. quite the, the people making the mistakes or the decisions or like going for this crazy thing. And um, I don't know. I think that I really, not to turn this into my therapy session, but I really <laughs> internalized a lot of that and was just sort of like looking at Maxim Magazine and FHM and like, okay, is that the goal? And I think it's been really fun to be a part of a show and never have you ever and also fresh off the boat where it's like these teenagers who are from different backgrounds and you know what? You know who else is horny? An, an Indian girl. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's a flavor to see. Yeah. yeah. Love that. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. Um, I, I think one of the uh, one of the things that stands out to me both in like the discussion of or, or the content that's been covered in, in all of these shows, right, is again dealing with like real world issues that are going on that are, that are true, that are raw, but also too in a way that is still kind of being able to keep a piece of hope and mm -hmm. in, um, that is like not all doom and gloom, um, that there is potentially a path forward, you know, if we are, if we make actual changes that um, that kind of like talk about the, the benefit of the collective. So how do you feel like, especially for thinking about uh, Gen Alpha and Gen Z audiences, is there a pull or want for more, you know, like like uh, realistic content or uh, more aspirational content? And do you feel attention when you're actually, you know, thinking about what is the story you're going to tell? Um, how do you kind of make sure that, you know, you're providing realism, but then also too, like talking about what, um, a ways potentially pathways forward and, and maybe some aspirational content as well. Um, I mean, since I made a polarizing show that some people found really depressing, I will talk about, I will answer this question. Um, but, you know, what we, the response that we got from so many kids at that time who had not been, where there was so much stigma in high school that you had nobody to go to to tell them you were raped, that you had nobody to go to to tell them that you were having suicidal ideation. You know, the barrage of letters, thousands and thousands of tweets and letters from kids who were like, thank God, thank God you're allowing me to talk about this, you've set me free. And um, yet it was very, very scary for parents and teachers that we made a decision, which was in the book, um, you know, that we had a guidance counselor who missed the signs and did not catch Hannah and she died by suicide. And there were a lot of guidance counselors and teachers that were very angry that our room made that choice. Um, but we felt it was so important because we had done so much research that if we showed just the hopeful version of the girl whose guidance counselor saves her life, we didn't understand how anybody whose friends were dying by suicide were going to be seen mm -hmm. or heard by this show. We didn't think anybody who was contemplating suicide would feel seen and heard by this show. And so we did a ton of research with not only psychiatrists but with the writers in our room who were you know, queer, black, brown, immigrant, you know, like um, rape survivors, 
suicide attempt survivors, we made a decision together to, to show the like more hopeless um, version, but like give hope to the kids who survived, right? To find love in each other. And I think though that since the pandemic and since I think that, that, that there's a real turn toward more aspirational, hopeful, fun content now, because the world has really just gotten way too depressing. Like, I would not be able to watch all those cuts of 13 Reasons Why right now, you guys. I would be really tired. <laughs> <laughs> I want to watch your show. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a, there's a balance that you have to strike. I think mm -hmm. kids really want to show, want to see something authentic, like on All American, People thought this was Beverly Hills 90210 set in Crenshaw and set in Beverly Hills at the, for, at the beginning of the show. Our third episode, our biracial boy was driving with Spencer, who is the lead, he's a kid from Crenshaw, and they get pulled over by a cop. And it is a police takedown because they're two black kids while driving. That's pure and simple what the story was. And the showrunners were kind of nervous about doing this episode. They, they wanted to bury it in episode like eight or nine down, down on the run. And credit goes to my boss, Mark Pedowitz, who said, no, make this episode two or three, because we want to make a statement. Um, and we made the statement, and it really changed the tenor of the show. Um, but we also made sure that there was, I'm going to use a crazy word, but there was a little bit of a lesson learned. The kid who had been in Beverly Hills had never been given the conversation, this is what you do as a black man when you were pulled over by the cops. Mm. And he had a huge falling out with his father because his father thought he was protecting him from having that conversation. So the conversation was deep. It wasn't just, uh, oh, he got pulled over by cops. It's the then what happens. Yeah. I think that's a big part of the follow through. You can't just do the sensational stuff. You can't just do the depressing stuff without having the real life consequences. As a fan, I was not expecting that. When, when that, when that uh, scene was shown, I was like, oh, we went there. Yeah. Which I you know, appreciate. Quickly, it. yeah. And then last season um, on All American, we um, decided to do something about the Breonna Taylor situation. So they mm -hmm. created a whole situation with the cops who killed a girl. And our kids get involved in the, uh, the, the resulting protests. And they, some of them get in trouble for it. Some of them suffer a lot of consequences for it. But still, the just, they wanted to have justice for this fictional character here. Um, and you just follow through the real life consequences. That's what I think is so great about television, which is you can incorporate real life into the room as it's unfolding. Mm -hmm. Because we did the same thing with our Reggie character, who was um, a, a, a local campus cop pulls a gun on it and it and but we also show the trauma and the PTSD that takes place mm -hmm. like when you're a kid being you know have, have a gun pulled on you um, but but it's also about processing you know I think so much of these shows are really about processing these things that you may or may not experience but you know are in the real world and you have this fear of them in the real world mm -hmm. that you, there's no place for, you know? So a show really gives you the opportunity to explore what that feels like ha through a character who's under, you know, who's going through that process. I'm an optimist, so I like yeah. to, I like to, mm -hmm. you know, show we can work through these things because that's what I believe. And I think for sure at, with the kids, they need to feel that, you know? They need mm -hmm. to feel that. Yeah. I think it's also important to work with your network 
and make sure that there is a social impact campaign, that there's a curriculum, that there is ancillary materials that yeah. sends kids to get help if they're triggered by content. I mean, that's something that, you know, we've always tried to be obsessive about and mm -hmm. are with all of our content. Now. That The impact campaigns are so powerful. They're so yeah. great. And they engage the audience and they engage kids. And that's what we want. We want to engage them with our audience. Um, we have another storyline that's involving um, teenage suicide and teenage mental health issues. And they're some of our strongest episodes. And we then create a whole social media campaign around them. Uh, they become part of our brand, the CW Good brand. Um, and it just creates and drives uh, more attention to the show, which is what, you know, as a network executive, I want. Um, I want, obviously, people to want to watch the show, but I also want people to be engaged with the show um, so that they want to come back to it year after year. Uh, from this conversation and, and uh, something uh, that you said earlier, Joy, thinking about parents not feeling prepared to have these conversations. Um, one thing we talk about at the center all the time is, uh, you know, the media that youth are consuming now is really going to shape them as adults too. Mm -hmm. And so I think having these real stories that are going to have, and I think the youth, um, really, I say the youth, like now I'm an old person. You're a doctor now, you're an old doctor now. But really engaging with these questions from an early age hopefully can set them up so that as they're then socializing their children, right, it's not, it's not as much of a shock that now they're having to have these conversations. And so again, we're like the work that you all are doing in media is actually like impacting future generations so that these conversations don't feel so such like a weird thing to have. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I just wanted to, you know, just point that out. Because well, I think there was like a trend of helicopter parenting, right? And then our kids are like having lockdown drills and have to worry about if there's like a strange man's gonna come and shoot everybody in the <laughs> middle of second grade. Mm. Like, I don't know how, there's just a cognitive dissonance in like, be safe, be safe, be safe. But also the world is a disaster and you are just not safe. And that's what's creating this anxiety for kids. And so if we using fictional content can give them a way to talk to their parents, that's why I'm so obsessed with like doing more four quadrant premium co-viewing mm -hmm. stuff mm -hmm. is because like I want parents and kids to have something fictional to talk about because that makes it so much easier to then later tell the story, my friend was assaulted or this happened, you know, because you've seen the fictional version first. Yeah, and I think my favorite versions of these uh, high school shows or shows that uh, target a younger demo actually don't just speak to the younger demo, it speaks to the entire demo. My, my husband is 66 years old, he loves All-American and his favorite character is Breezy character Coop who is the uh, you know the rapper from from South Central um, because he finds he can really relate to her uh, her struggles so um, if parents can get involved in the show as well as the kids and you can have those they can see the conversations happening on screen they can actually feel comfortable having those conversations in person yeah. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> he loves breezy so I have many other questions I can ask, but I did want to allow space for any questions from the audience. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll just call on folks as the hands I see them. This first speaker's question is a little fuzzy in the recording, so I'll say it on his behalf. I'm just very interested, and I speak as a younger person. I know that there's a lot of change, even like Gossip Girl. I saw Gossip Girl when I was young, and I'm seeing Gossip Girl now, and I'm like, wow, it's so different. 
How do you distinguish the topics that matter most to kids? Like mental health is one, race is an important one, but I'm shocked at how little climate appears. Is that something you are thinking about and developing? And also with Never Have I Ever, I loved the show and I was talking about it with my coworker who is from Pakistan and she had a different, more negative take And it got me thinking, oh, wow, it's so hard to get it right. Because if you do a story that is literally for people who are born here and representation is not just the way you look, but how you really are to your community, how do you reconcile that? I think it's hard to, one of the like pitfalls of being like the Indian teenager show is like, you can't like represent every Indian teenager's experience and so there are going to be people with notes like that's not exactly representing and so that's why I'm like hopeful that the momentum just continues and that there are many shows about you know Indian families, Asian families, black families like it just feels like we're still in this world of like okay well we have our this show and we have our that show like I just hope and the people I pitched to, I'm like, I would love to see more diversity there in those spaces. I feel like that would go a long way. But I guess as part of a, a team, it's all just about, like, the authenticity of the character and just, like, boiling down that story to, like, a, you know, all of those stories are really about, like, belonging, the the need to belong and and the the you know, details of the family, what that family's culture is there, that's all like, that feeds into that. But like, I feel like you can't win with everybody, right. you know? Exactly. And climate is really important mm-hmm. to seed in through all these stories. I totally agree. But it's like Lee Rodriguez and Richard Marzani and Never Savallava, they're super climate activists. There is nothing on Never Savallava about climate. Right. And People who follow the show know about climate. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you, we tried to on our home on our show home before dark. We tried to make our season two, season one mystery was a murder, and it was TV fourteen, and then it alienated a younger group, and it made it harder to get like Brooklyn Prince, the lead of that show, is nine years old, and. Um, and so not a lot of older kids wanted to tune in and watch a nine-year-old, even though it was directed by John Chu and was a premium show. So then we tried to make the second season mystery a climate mystery and have her fighting for clean water. And like, ain't nobody want to watch clean yeah. water stories, guys. It's hard. It's definitely hard to put climate stories. Like, I tried in a couple, of, and I have things in development. Cabrina will tell you. Um, we, it's it's hard to make it cinematic and something that these TikTokers want to watch, but it's a great challenge. Anybody who's a writer here, please tell us. Yeah, <laughs> great climate story. What I'm finding a lot of a lot of times, what you can do in science fiction is sort of hide yes. The, yes. Uh, the, the 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 message mm-hmm. in a really interesting story. Mm-hmm. You know, I worked on a show mm-hmm. a while ago called Revolution, and this was a a world in which the climate had gone to hell in a handbasket and there was no electricity left. There was no power left. Um, and we got to explore the world of, you know, the bleak world where there was no power, uh, there was no, no, no control in the uh, context of a science fiction show. So that's, how, that's how I think you can tell a story that can be entertaining, yet still also be enlightening. Yeah, climate seems to usually be the backdrop. I'm thinking like Tenet, you know. Yeah, like yeah. yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, that's actually really interesting. 
and myself, Sheena's, and first. Okay, thank you so much, panelists and moderators. This is a very exciting room to be in. Um, some great shows represented. I am uh, thinking you know, about the, the title of our session here, and, and thinking about that most of what we are getting better at right now is thinking about this Gen Z audience right now, that they're kind of adults, and now that they're even some of them maybe into writers' rooms. Um, and I um, was wondering if, if any of you would kind of, I don't know, I guess I'm asking you to predict the future a little bit, but <laughs> in thinking about how strategies might change, how your strategies might change, thinking specifically about Gen Alpha, which is our, what, 10-year-olds and under right now, mm -hmm. as they are moving into kind of being more of the target audience and spotlighted thoughts about um, how, you know, uh, storytelling strategies might change and develop as Gen Alpha becomes a focus compared to Gen Z? I think it's hard to predict what content is necessarily going to be interesting to 10-year-olds, you know, a couple of years down the road. But I think the way in which they consume content can be more predictable. Um, you are seeing a lot more serialized shows now because people binge them. You know, you don't see closed-ended procedurals as much anymore. Those shows are, you know, on CBS. Um, but you're seeing shows that, you know, you've got a story, a super story over let's say 10 episodes, 13 episodes, as well as maybe individual stories in an episode because people are watching them, whether they're watching them on streaming or whether they're watching them um, on, on broadcast, they're watching them in, in, in a binge format. They want to watch everything all at once. Doesn't matter how old you are, it's not a young person's uh, format anymore, it's everybody wants to binge. So I think that's, that's something that I've seen really evolve over the last couple of years. You don't see anything that's just a strict procedural. And I think you're going to see a lot more character evolution in stories as well. Um, and so the ability to write characters is going to be more and more important. Um, and then people love, um, they love closed-ended one-season shows, and oftentimes they won't come back to a second season. So you've got to come back with something really big, and you've got to tease them at the end of that first season, or else they may not come back at the end oh. of that second season. So I think I, I can give you more ways in which we can predict how story, uh, the consumption of stories will happen more than what they're actually going to be interested in watching. I also think generationally, we're progressively getting more and more diverse, right? The boomers are 18% diverse, I think, and Gen Z is about 40% or, or even more, maybe 42%. You run Diversity for Lionsgate. You sat in front of me. You tell me. What's the number? <laughs> <laughs> We've been pretty close to 50% um, at the like, under 18 mark. So I would imagine Gen Alpha is going to be even more diverse. Mm -hmm. And then I think it's going to be less and less and less of a fight to have more res dogs and more incredibly diverse shows getting out there because there's just going to be more diverse people getting older and better at their jobs that can write them and star in them. <laughs> and green like them. And green, yes, that's, by the way, you guys, like that's the thing that I think is the biggest problem we face right now. Like, I remember I took out a show that was the most undeniable package. It was like Issa, Jada, Rashida directing. There was one black woman that could buy that show. Uh -huh. In the entire town, every buyer, you and know? Did she? And she was beat out by Bill McGoldrick and Peacock, and then the show ended up dying. But because her network couldn't give as much of a budget to that uh -huh. show, right? Uh -huh. And it was so frustrating, like, 
to go to all of those rooms with the most powerful, brilliant black women on earth and feel so grateful to be even sitting in that room with them, but know that there wasn't a powerful black woman that could order that show. Yeah. Um, and that is still our biggest problem. I mean, I'm really trying to bring everything to Tara Duncan at Onyx first mm -hmm. because she's building something beautiful there. And, um, but with, that's what we need, and I hope that as the generations get more diverse, we'll have more people in power to, to order the shows, you know? This next questioner was a little too soft to hear, so I will read out what he said to our panelists. I know there's been a lot of conversation so far that has contrasted the older boomer audiences versus Gen Z and Gen Alpha, but there was a statement earlier about this idea of four-quadrant viewing. So I was curious to know what your guys' thoughts are about creating content that drives or creates that conversation between the generations. I think of what my parents watched versus what I watch versus what my kids watch, and it's like they're in completely different universes. But do you guys have any thoughts about content that gets those conversations going and brings these folks together? Is that something that is increasingly possible, or are we moving toward a square where everything's going to be micro-niches? Well, I think people don't realize because they don't they don't publish a lot of the data, but like 40% of the 13 reasons why audience is over 35 and half of those are men. And like on our Apple show, Home Before Dark, I kept begging them to please market this to the Ted Lasso audience because I'm looking at Twitter and everybody that's going, why don't you market this show? It's my favorite show. I watch it with my kids are 40 year old dudes. They're just, they're like dads in Connecticut that are like, finally, there's a show about me and my daughter. And so I believe that these, they, and we always put a grandpa up in there, you know, like, because I got to get my dad to watch it in Jersey. Um, but I actually don't think the buyers understand. Like, I hope when they see how hacks has worked, which is like, I think one of the most brilliant things that was made in the last year. But like, I hope that buyers start to understand that like, teenagers want to watch something with their grandpa and talk about it. Like people want to communicate over content. And I think older people want to watch, especially post pandemic, since families started living together and quarantined together. Like, I think it's that the buyers don't realize how much <clears throat> older people want to watch teen and kid shows just as much as kids want to watch Breaking Bad, like old episodes from 10 years ago. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think in today's environment where there's so much competition for the viewing audience, the streaming services, the cable channels, the broadcast networks are all trying to find their niche. Um, and the broadcast networks can't really be broadcast networks anymore because they are losing their audience. Um, the average age of the um, viewer on Fox is 59. 59 years old, and they're the youngest skewing network. My network is 60. That's just people watching us on TV. Now, if you talk about streaming services, it's different. But uh, when you're talking purely about television, people watching television, the average age of the person watching a show on CBS is 64. So the audience, where do you find uh, an opportunity for the um, four-quadrant viewing? It may not be in scripted programming. It may be something like The Voice. It may be American Idol. Those are shows where you can actually yeah, exactly. Those are the kind of shows that you can get your family around. Um, and, and that's what I'm seeing in terms of four quadrant shows. I'm seeing unscripted shows really taking that territory from us. Well, we have one, uh, we have one minute left. So if there's 
time for like one last quick question. The last audience member to speak mentioned that she is a big fan of YA content like Riverdale and Never Have I Ever and wanted to know what numbers the panelists are seeing for older viewers of YA series. Yeah, we get ratings nightly, we get ratings weekly, um, and we get a de demographic breakdown of who's watching shows. Um, and. You, there's a very uh, consistent audience of 55 plus who watch a lot of television. We pretty much know every show's gonna get a, a certain audience there. The variable is in the younger audience. Um, and that younger audience will love a show one season and then the next season will go away completely. They'll evaporate. So it's a very fickle audience and you're, if you're trying to chase it all the time, it's gonna be really, really difficult. Um, so you get a show like Never Have I Ever where you've got two great seasons and very well-watched seasons. That's kind of a unicorn these days, you know, so. What can I say? <laughs> which is like, been, was five seasons now? We're, we're going into our sixth season, yeah. Yeah. Seventh season, sixth season. So how, what do you think makes Riverdale, I'm sorry to take your question, but it's kind of a question, <laughs> but you know what I mean, like how does Riverdale sustain six seasons? Have you guys watched Riverdale? It's just nuts. It gets crazier <laughs> and crazier <laughs> every year. They I just, only watch the next to normal episode. They, and they just keep upping the ante, and that's what our audience expects, you know, and then, you know, so, I don't know where they're gonna go next season, but it gets crazier and crazier, and I think the audience expects it to get next level crazy, literally next level crazy every season. <laughs> 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 I wonder if there's like, I mean, is that how they're, they're catering towards the, this, the younger audience, like this it's not just for young kids, obviously, right? No, that, that show is, that's our youngest skewing show on the network. Um, the average age of the total viewer, I think, is 38. So that one captures young and old audiences. Um, but I think we developed an expectation with the audience that it's going to get crazy, crazier and crazier. And we get like, different matches, and you know, it's becoming kind of incestuous who's with whom and who broke up with whom and who got back together with whom. So, uh, but our audience expects that, and I think our showrunners realize that's what they want, that's what the audience wants. So that's what, how they can keep upping the ante by just keep getting crazier and crazier. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, just, but beyond even Riverdale, I mean, I'm not 11 years old, but I love that show. Well, it's the greatest show on television. Mm. I've never had And you think about baby. <laughs> I'm also in eighth grade. <laughs> <laughs> you, you think about Babysitters Club. You know, when it first came out as a as a series of books, you know, you were pretty. You were probably pretty young, and you, it was probably your age. It was. Nostalgic. It's a nostalgic thing. Oh, That's why okay. you're seeing so many remakes now, because it's gonna. You know, Saved by the Bell. People who watched it originally love it, and kids love it too. You know, so there's there's a reason why, you know, aside from the lack of creativity in this community, there's a reason why we're doing a lot of remakes. <laughs> because they're trying to figure out how to appeal to two audiences. And those books were progressive at the time. I mean, I remember my girlfriends who were both, my two best friends who were Asian, were like, Claudia Kishi is like mm. a person who looks like my two mm -hmm. best friends. And like, they felt seen by her. And she was like a sexy artist with cool outfits. And you know, like I yeah. think there's a lot of Nostalgia, but also there was something. There's something modern about them that makes older people watch it too. Connection between the Make them think that they're cool. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that concludes this episode of the Scholars and Storytellers podcast. A very special thank you to our moderator, Dr. Gerald Higginbotham, 
and our panelists, Joy Gorman, Steve Tao, Stephanie Elaine, and Erica Oyama. This is our second in a series of three podcast episodes with recaps of conversations from the Scholars and Storytellers Summit. If you are interested in more content related to storytelling for adolescent audiences, check out our latest blog series. This podcast was produced by the Center for Scholars and Storytellers, with special thanks to Jim Ools for creating the intro music, the UCLA Film School, Nir Liebenthal, Annie Myers, Iris Yang, and Sophie Fulati. Goodbye for now, and thank you for listening.